Hi, everybody. Uh, Andrew here from uh, just outside Boulder, Colorado on a really spectacular spring day, finally. Um, and I want to make a, an extend a special invitation, as Andy um, stated, to our uh, new attendees, because this is the first uh, public webinar that we hope to um, offer perhaps quarterly uh, in the spirit of openness, which is a theme that I want to unpack actually during this webinar. Um, and so what we want to do here is, is uh, nightclub, and I'll tell you a little bit about what that is and, and uh, what we're doing. Um, you know, in these public webinars really opens its doors to the public as a way to introduce people to what we're doing, you could say, underneath the cover of darkness uh, inside nightclub. Um, and because this particular topic is, uh, or I should say this webinar is a little bit on the special side, what you will find with it is it's, it's topic rich. There's a lot of, I think, really juicy material that I'm going to share with you over the next 45 minutes or so that will then seed, as you will see, um, this developing series that uh, we will unpack in these um, public webinars as they go forth. But let me just tell you a little bit about this nightclub thing that we've been doing. It's a, it's a venture that I have been working on for some 10 months now with a really gifted team of designers and advisors and the like. And it uses the um, platform of lucid dreaming, um, which then evolves into dream yoga, which evolves into sleep yoga, which evolves into bardo yoga, um, is kind of an excuse, really, to talk about um, the nature of mind and reality. And so even though lucid dreaming is most definitely the entry point, and we have a ton of data um, already posted on the site, and we talk about it a lot with these webinars and with our guests, the scope, as you will see, is is really pretty big, um, and I think that's what makes this platform, this site, unique. Is that we we talk about a ton of different things, um, and in addition to these webinars, just to give you a sense of what we're doing, um, in the back of the club, so to speak, we have kind of a secret doorway to what we are calling night school, which is comprised of six ongoing tracks or curricula that all um, kind of circumambulate or center this idea, the central point of lucid dreaming. And so it starts with the science and medicine of sleep. We've already interviewed one sleep specialist. There's another one coming up this Friday. This is where we talk about the, the bread and butter or the nuts and bolts of how to have better sleep, what to do with sleep disorders. Um, and then the second track is daytime practices, those that facilitate the lucidity project altogether. And this would be, of course, meditation, things like the practice of illusory form, and just a host of things that uh, I think a lot of classic lucid dreamers may not be that aware of. And then, of course, from there, we launch into the actual nocturnal practices per se, um, uh, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, sleep yoga, bardo yoga um, curricula. And in addition to that, we also have the Very Rich Forum where people can get online and talk about tips and tricks um, that they have for attaining lucidity, share their problems, share their successes, and, and people have this own, their own very successful ongoing track developing there. Um, and if you want to know more about <clears throat> the benefits of which there, this is just a sampling of it, there are many, many more. You can obviously click onto the site. It's nightclub.andrewholacek.com, and you'll see all the different things that we offer there. Um, 
And so before I start every one of these webinars, I do a little bit of uh, house clean, housekeeping in terms of just making some announcements. And these are usually sharings of who I have just interviewed and who I'm about to interview because this is turning out to be one of the real highlights of nightclub. And certainly for me, I'm just having such a terrific time talking to these people. And so just yesterday, I uh, spent a couple of hours interviewing James Kingsland, who is a, a wonderful science journalist and author of several books, one called Siddhartha's Brain, which is on the neuroscience of, of meditation. And I was asked to endorse his book that's coming out in um, August called um, Am I Dreaming? The New Science of Consciousness and How Altered States Reboot the Brain. And this is a really, in my opinion, a tour de force. It's a really brilliant tour of the topic of neurophenomenology, how it is that especially neuroscience can talk um, about how it is that we construct our realities and how we can use the medium of the dream to actually help us understand the nature of reality. So it's utterly, completely resonant with what we're doing in the spirit of nightclub. And James and I had just a kicking good time yesterday talking about, oh, oh my goodness, hallucinations, psychedelics, hypnosis, placebo. I mean, the range was was really quite extraordinary. And so that'll be posted, I believe, this um, this week. Um, I also interviewed yesterday as well um, the cognitive neuroscientist Jordan Qualia, who I had a great good fortune of, of actually doing my first scientific study with and, and had my first paper co-authored and published with Jordan. Um, and this is a really delightful romp through virtual reality and um, how virtual reality connects to lucid dreaming. And we discussed just a ton of things there as well. What are the great promises of virtual reality? What are the equally disconcerting shadow sides to this? Because, well, virtual reality in a certain way is, is taking the world by storm. Um, there are a host of problems that, that uh, Jordan and I tried to unpack and share with you. This coming Friday, um, I'm interviewing Kristen Lamarck, who's a PhD uh, psychologist, dream researcher, who works with lucid dreaming in a therapeutic capacity. Um, and she's a really cool gal. She has a, a great lucid dream course on her own site that I'll connect people to. And I've had the great good fortune of actually co-teaching with Kristen um, under the, our mutual mentor, Stephen LaBerge. And so she's a very gifted uh, um, researcher and a really elite lucid dreamer. And so I'm really looking forward to my conversation with her. And just briefly, here's a, a list of who's on deck, people that are committed. And I'm harping on this a little bit because, um, like I mentioned, these interviews are turning out to be one of the real highlights of what we're offering here. And so people who are on deck that have already made commitments that I've um, most of them I already have dates set up with include Richard Miller, who's a PhD dream researcher, spiritual teacher, um, you know, inventor of the IRS and uh, deeply works with uh, Yoga Nidra and the like. He's a wonderful human being. Um, Patricia Garfield, who's a, a major pioneer in the world of dreaming and, and lucid dreaming altogether. I was extremely fortunate to get her. Um, we're looking at her for a little bit later on in the summer. B. Alan Wallace, um, who's written and edited some 40 books, including um, a book on lucid dreaming and dream yoga. Um, he's committed. We're going to set him up quite shortly. I had a wonderful meeting with Reggie Ray just last week. Many of you may know him. He's a Buddhist scholar, esteemed author and writer. And so we're going to go online together. Claire Johnson's a famous, very well-known dream researcher. She's on deck. Roger Walsh, um, MD, PhD. He's a big integral thinker. 
um, and a dear friend. He's come online or is going to come online with us. And then Evan Thompson and, and a host of other really cool people are on deck. So stay tuned for these uh, upcoming interviews. I think you're going to really enjoy them um, as much as I certainly have. So today, what I want to talk about today, I think you all read the riff about um, Wake Center City and the like. But really, the, uh, the larger theme or narrative here is the theme of openness altogether. Um, and again, it's very much in the spirit of opening these webinars every now and again to the general public so they get a taste of what we're doing. Um, and so I want to talk about this, this narrative of openness and all the many topics or some of the many topics that circumambulated um, and things like meditation, for instance, because one of my very favorite, I think, most applicable definitions of meditation these days is, in fact, habituation to openness. Um, and you will see how that immediately applies to what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and even historically, when the historical Buddha, the Buddha Shakyamuni, you know, his name, the etymology of the word Buddha comes from a root that, that means the awakened one, but it also means the opened one. And so, therefore, um, this suggests to me that opening has a lot to do with the process of awakening. And by contradistinction, um, closing, contracture, and centricities um, has a lot to do with the unconscious processes and practices of what keeps us so spiritually asleep. And I will argue in this particular webinar and the ones that follow that it is contraction, closure, centricity that has become what um, neuroscientists call the default mode network. This, by the way, is the theme I talked about with James yesterday. The default mode network is um, one of the principal neural um, substrates of what we call ego. It's basically where we go, where uh, we default into when we relate to ourselves and to others. And, and this definition, these definitions really imply a number of things. Um, and one of what this implies, one thing that it implies that is really important that I have talked about in earlier webinars and earlier in, in, um, posts that I have on the nightclub site is that whether we know it or not, we're, we're always practicing. We're always engaged in some form of meditation. And this is deeply connected to the Tibetan word for meditation, which transliterated G-O-M, G-O-M, which means um, to become familiar with. And what it implies is that whether we know it or not, we are always becoming increasingly familiar with either mindfulness or mindlessness, either being awake or staying asleep in a spiritual sense, either staying open or being closed, um, or in our language, um, either lucidity or non-lucidity. And I think this is really important to, to say because it helps us understand why we're so proficient, why we're so good at having non-lucid dreams, because we're practicing non-lucidity all the time. Um, every time we capitulate to distraction, to mindlessness, to forgetfulness, we're practicing non-lucidity. And so these are actually synonyms for non-lucid dreams. A non-lucid dream is a distracted dream. It's a forgotten dream. It's a mindless dream. It's a dream where you've forgotten the fact that you're actually dreaming. And this is really important 
in terms of having lucid dreams, because then what we can do is transform these bad unconscious habits, this kind of default mode network of distraction, forgetfulness, and mindlessness. We can practice mindfulness, remembrance, lucidity, um, and the like. And, and so therefore, by shifting from this default mode network during the waking state into what we can hopefully establish is a new default mode network, a new network of lucidity, of awareness, of openness. A natural consequence of this is, in fact, increased lucidity in the dream state. And this is really, really important. It, it um, develops a theme that I have talked about on several posts on the, web, on the, on the iClub site, um, the same of bidirectionality, that what you do during the day has a very direct effect on what happens when you sleep and dream. And then what's maybe not as much known, but is certainly cultivated in these nocturnal practices, what you do with sleep and dream does not have to remain tucked under the dark, uh, cover, comforter of darkness. You can bring the insights from lucidity in the dream and dreamless sleep state back into waking consciousness to um, develop this kind of virtuous circle of lucidity that in fact replaces this otherwise unconscious, vicious circle or cycle of non-lucidity. Um, in a very large way, what we're doing with nightclub is in fact just this kind of narrative, this charter, um, replacing unconscious um, bad habits that um, keep about uh, bringing about non-lucidity, replacing those with conscious good habits, good karma that brings about lucidity. Um, but I want to show you in the context of this particular webinar, how deep this statement goes about how it is that we are unwittingly closing ourselves down all the time through a battery of contractions, a battery of centricities that we're not even aware of. And that's what makes them so, so dangerous. It's a signature really of the dark age. Um, you know, many of you may know that according to Eastern thought, we are in the Kali Yuga, the dark age. And what makes the dark age so dark is its insidious nature. Um, these undercurrents of distraction, um, principally these undercurrents of darkness, these undercurrents of closures that keep us trapped in unaware states. And, and this is what I want to try to bring into awareness because this is so much more than just bringing about lucid dreams. It's really about um, bringing an understanding to what it is that um, instills suffering altogether. Um, and how we can therefore use these dreaming states to not only wake up to our dreams, but to wake up to our lives. I mean, lucid dreaming leads to lucid living. And fundamentally, that leads to the alleviation of suffering. So this charter, as you will see, like I alluded to at the outset, is vast. It covers a lot of um, terrain that I think when people start to um, be exposed to it, they realize, wow, there, you know, there's a natural resource available to me every single night when I go to sleep. I can tap into some of these insights. And that's where most of these insights came from me. Um, for me, is you know, over 40 years of doing these practices, um, I start to see these types of closures, these centricities and contractions that keep me so non-lucid, so asleep, and therefore ensconced in, in various degrees of suffering. And so there's uh, an archetypal... Um, quotation for me, a statement that some of you may recognize, it comes from the Dzogchen tradition that will be in many ways the, the central, um, you could say, reference statement from the wisdom traditions. And, and I want to share this with you because not only 
does it kind of elucidate uh, what I want to now um, specifically start to unfold for you? But it also gives us something to practice. So it's not just kind of spiritual rhetoric. It's something that we can leave with by the end of this webinar. It's something we can actually start to do. And so here it is. Uh, the, quote, the quotation is as follows. The everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations and emotions and to all people, experiencing everything totally without mental reservations and blockages so that one never withdraws or centralizes onto oneself. And so here's a very a minor amendment in terms of terminology where we can then take this seminal statement and apply it as the platform for what we're going to explore. So the everyday practices we will see in this webinar is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all states of consciousness, experiencing all states completely without reservations, blockages, or closures so that one never withdraws or centralizes onto the waking state alone. Um, and so this, of course, is uh, another way to talk about um, wake centricity, which I will now slowly start to define. Um, but there's another implication. And again, I'm tossing out some of these implications now because I want to show you how much fodder there is here, how much grist for the, for the mill there is here in terms of things that we will be un unpacking in, in these future public webinars. So this, in, in certain ways, even though this is a self-contained presentation, it's like a, a little bit of a table of contents of things that I will come back to over the next, really, hopefully a couple of years and just unfold, unfold, unfold um, to show you how this is really just the center of this, you could say mandala, the center of this um, journey that I hope to share with you. And so here's one of the many implications around this that may be unfamiliar to a number of you is, is that according to um, wisdom traditions, especially the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and very specifically uh, a great master that I have a deep connection with, his, his name is Milarepa, and one of his kind of principal um, um, contemporary um, expositors, you could say, is uh, my main teacher, Kempel Tsultrim Gyalso Rinpoche. Both these amazing masters say that until you, until one can experience and actually meditate in the dream state, in exactly the same way that one can experience and meditate in the dreaming, in the dream, uh, in the daytime state, your meditation is actually incomplete. Um, in other words, you still have an unstable meditation, and you are still closing your off yourself off to other dimensions of your own being. And Milarepa sings this very beautifully in what's called a Doha or Song of Realization, where he says or sings. You know, not seeing day and dream as differing, this is as meditation as it can be. And so what this is pointing out to that we will unfold is the ultimate equivalence, or you could say democracy, of all states of consciousness that we in the West, of course, don't abide by because of the subversive um, tenets of wake centricity. So this is really what I want to focus on, is wake centricity and how exploring it can reveal these closures, can reveal these blind spots. And in my experience over these decades of doing the nocturnal meditations, this has been one of the most powerful um, aspects of doing them. So these revelatory insights of 
discovering places where um, I don't even know that I don't know. And some of these some of these blind spots, as we will see, they're so dark we don't even see them. They're so contracted. It's like when your hand gets frozen or you're in a cramp, you're numb to them. Um, they're so deep we can't even access them. They're there are discriminations and you could even say prejudices that are so deep that we don't realize we're afflicted by them. And these are the really nasty ones. Uh, if you don't even know that you don't know, like Socrates was very um, keen to point out, that's when you're really blind. And, and even now, I mean, here's just one case in point. A, a study I read recently about um, prejudice, about literally color prejudice. We, you may not think that you're color prejudiced, but there was one study that was done where in a reaction time test, pleasant and unpleasant words were paired with the words white and black. And this study showed that the words with pleasant connotations were more rapidly paired with the color white, with the word white, I should say, while words with unpleasant overtones were quickly paired with the word black. And so um, these types of studies and these types of practices, these nocturnal meditations, in fact, bring these unconscious processes that constrict, restrict, close our perception, close our relationship to the world and other in ways we don't even know. They bring these into the light of consciousness and therefore allow us to attain a liber um, sane relationship to them and eventually be liberated from their restrictions. And so I always talk about here uh, several things. One is Daniel Borstein, the great, really, historian. And I believe this comes from his book, The Discoverers. He talks about the myth of knowledge, which is the most dangerous of all myths, which is when you think you know something to be certain and it's not. It's also sometimes referred to as the myth of the given, something that's so axiomatic, so given, you don't even question it. You don't even question it. Um, and that's where the real, the real problems lie. It's like uh, Mark Twain put it, my favorite kind of paraphrase, when Mark Twain said, you know, it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you do know that just ain't so. Um, and really, in a large sense, the fact that we're awake right now, according to the Buddha and many other awakened masters, just ain't so. The fact that you're in touch with all of reality in the waking state just ain't so. Um, and the great thinkers East and West knew this, like I mentioned, Socrates knew this, and it was a large part of this in-your-face kind of Socratic method. He was not afraid to question authority. And the Buddha and other radical masters, sometimes you know, talk about as the rebel, the radical Buddha, also was not afraid to question authority with his investigations, with his um, uh, analytic meditations, with his Vipassana techniques. And so, in a very real way, as pioneers of consciousness, and I'm going to come back to this at the very end, as pioneers, really, in, in uh, evolution altogether, pioneers are not afraid to question authority. They're not to afraid to challenge the status quo. And that's exactly what we're going to do when we look at this massive closure, this massive road closure of wake centricity. Um, this is the first of a host of these that I want to talk about, including photocentricity, site centricity, all of these centricities um, that ring us in, that trap us, restrain us, confine us in ways we don't even know. And they co-conspire us, they co-conspire against us to keep us so asleep. And they're all centered, they're all in the retinue. They all circumambulate the mother of all centricities, um, really like a black hole 
which is of course the, the black hole, or sometimes I actually call it what I say, the think hole of egocentricity. All these centricities are in the service of egocentricity. And this is what I'm going to get to in the following um, webinars. And we can see how ego's machinations um, bring about all these restrictive ways to shut us down to the nature of mind and reality. And so the image I use here in terms of the power of awake centricity is the following. And this is a very common one for many of us. It's the images that you're in a, an incredibly bright room. So just imagine wherever you are right now, this room is absolutely saturated and flooded with intense light. And you're in this room for a long time, and so your your you know your eyes, your pupils get really right uh, constricted, right to the point. And then um, you know you're, you're, you you want to step outside and get a breath, breath of fresh air, and you step out into the nighttime sky. And at first, when you step outside, I mean you can't see a thing. I mean it is just pitch black because your eyes are so constricted. Um, but if you're just patient, if you simply keep your eyes open and allow your eyes to accommodate, you will start to see things that have always been there. They were there, but you just never saw them before because you weren't open to them. They were there, but they were invisible to you because um, you weren't able to accommodate this kind of openness. And so really, this is a wonderful metaphor to me because as the mind is the uh, uh, the eyes relax and accommodate, the pupils dilate, they open. And um, so quite literally to see in the dark, we have to open our eyes and keep them open. And the nocturnal meditations of lucid dreaming, dream yoga, sleep yoga, and bardo yoga are exactly designed to do that. They're progressive stages of opening this, these inner eyes, you could say the third eye, the mind's eye, um, or even the heart's eye, so that we can see things uh, internally and then also externally that we have never seen before. And so to me, this also um, puts forth how cool it is that when you start to look at the nomenclature behind things like lucid dreaming and whatnot, there's a whole family of what I call the, you know, these um, uh, secret language, twilight language, sometimes it's referred to code language, where, for instance, in this regard, darkness is a code word for the unconscious mind for ignorance. And so what we're trying to do then, of course, is see into and through this ignorance by keeping our eyes open using these methods of the nocturnal practices. And so again, this, this allows us to see deeper into ourselves. This dilation or expansion of, of awareness allows us to see further into the darkness of the unconscious mind, um, penetrating the darkness of ignorance, which is really where our true fundamental nature resides. And so as I will try to show you in this in future webinars, this kind of non-centric view is a dilated view. It's an open-minded, an open-hearted, enlarged view of mind and reality that doesn't contract and shrink wrap when it's exposed to light. It doesn't shrink wrap around form um, and all these other kind of manifestations of life that I'm going to um, talk about in just a second. But I wanted to share another um, metaphor around this idea of peering into the darkness. And this is one I came across um, about a year or so ago when I was watching this really interesting, I think it was a NOVA program on the Hubble telescope, Space Telescope. And um, they were talking about how it was that, that astrophysicists, astronomers and the like, wanted to try to determine how many stars there were in the known universe. And so what they did is they were able to train um, the 
the lens of the Hubble as it um, orbited around the world for 10 consecutive days. They, they kind of kept its gaze and eyes open, so to speak. In a point in space, the size of a drinking straw, right? So, I mean, you know, like smaller than this. And um, they picked a point in space, which was pitch black. In other words, there's like nothing there, the size of a drinking straw. And over the course of 10 days, the Hubble kept its gaze open, patient, patient. And eventually all these dots of light started to appear. And over the course of 10 days, some 10,000 points of light appeared in this tiny little space, each of which then was determined to be a, gal a galaxy in and of itself, each of which contained 100 to 200 billion stars. And so in this point in space that was pitch black to the untrained eye, to the closed um, or unaccommodated eye, was there were 10, you know, 10,000 galaxies with up to 200 billion stars in each galaxy. And so parenthetically, that's how they, they were able to mathematically extrapolate that in the known universe of which they now conjecture is only 5% of what may be out there. Every time they look, it just keeps getting bigger. There are more stars in the known galaxy, in the known universe, than there are grains of sand on every beach on this entire planet. Um, and that's truly an astronomical fact. But the, the idea here, again, is if even, even scientifically, mathematically, let alone cognitively and spiritually, if we're just patient, we look into previously unseen domains with perseverance, determination, we will start to see things never seen before. And this is precisely what these nocturnal practices allow us to do. So let's come back to this wake centricity thing. So, so you're, you know, you're in a super bright room or the old days we had the flash bulbs, you're, the flash bulb goes off and you're temporarily blinded. Well, um, we're not just temporarily blinded, not just for a few seconds, um, not even for a few hours, but according to the wisdom traditions, We've been blinded, if you believe in things like uh, rebirth, we have been blind, blinded, um, um, you could say blinded by the light for countless lifetimes. We are lost in the light. And this is principally due to this excess of familiarity we have with waking consciousness. And it's like I said at the outset, um, meditation means to become familiar with. We are so excessively familiar with waking consciousness that waking consciousness has had a blinding effect on other states of consciousness. Um, it contracts the mind down to a point, that point being ego, um, and therefore it shuts out the vast majority of reality. And so we're ironically blinded by the light. Um, a, a particular maxim that I will show you in future webinars has really profound implications when we talk about light as another code word, and in this case, it's what's it's a, a polysemous code word. Polysemy is is a, I love these words. It really means many many meanings, many layers. Um, and so, uh, light is a polysemous code word because not only is it a reference to awareness, that's the principal kind of decrypted um, meaning of light, but as we will see, um, light also refers to any manifestation of mind. Um, it, it fundamentally, and this is a shattering conclusion that I will point out to you, it actually refers to any form itself. And I will point out to you how it is that the wisdom traditions, in conjunction with some really provocative theories in quantum mechanics, talk about reality as being literally, not metaphorically, literally composed of frozen light. 
And I will try to show you that this is fundamentally the frozen light of the mind itself. Um, so that's a little paren sidebar for a future webinar. Um, but the idea here, again, is like all closed-mindedness, wake centricity is highly restricting. It's what I refer to as a total eclipse of the mind. It reduces mind and reality to what we can perceive during the day. And so then what wake centricity does, again, whether we know it or not, is it fundamentally leaves out two other states of consciousness. And, and I would say it leaves out two-thirds of reality. And this other two-thirds, of course, is what we can experience in lucid dream states and also lucid sleeping states. And so when I say um, it's leaving out uh, two-thirds of reality, it's not. this is not a temporal um, categorization. In other words, what, what I mean by this is we don't spend an equal amount of time in the waking state, in the dream state, in the deep dreamless state. But this is a categorical um, distinction uh, and inclusivity that needs to be known. That that we that we're, if we believe and we totally buy into the limitations of the wake-centric model, which of course we do without even knowing it, we're fundamentally leaving out two-thirds of what's available to us, which is precisely the two-thirds that are available to us when we sleep and dream. And really, just because we can't access them doesn't reduce their viability and value. And in fact, for the great mystics, viability and value of the dream and dreamless states can be more fruitful, as I'll talk about shortly. They actually have more potentiality for psycho-spiritual development, um, which I'm going to come back to. But the idea here, again, this is the, the central narrative, is that these other two states of consciousness, dreaming and then even dreamless sleep, when we're lucid to them, provide this more complete understanding of mind and reality. The picture is now complete. And for those of you who may not know about lucid sleep, most of us know about lucid dreaming. It's when you wake up to the fact that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. Some of us may not be familiar with lucid sleep, which is, uh, again, part of the wisdom traditions. Uh, yoga Nidra, literally sleep yoga in the Hindu tradition, what's called luminosity yoga in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. This is where practitioners work to maintain lucidity or awareness in the deep dreamless state. Um, and as incredulous, unbelievable as that may seem, there is now some data um, coming about from studies that are done by Giulio Tononi, really an esteemed neuroscientist out of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he and his colleagues have been studying really advanced meditators and doing incredibly interesting um, imaging with fMRIs and the like, um, showing that in fact this classic assertion that one can attain lucidity in the deep dreamless state will now slowly develop some scientific footing. And when that takes off, it's going to be a semi-big deal in exactly the same way that everybody categorically just dismissed lucid dreaming until Keith Hearn in England and Stephen LaBerge at Stanford independently proved it in the 70s. And since then, lucid dreaming has really taken off. Lucid sleep is a little bit, um, nascent, a little bit on the early stages, but there is some really compelling preliminary data that, that is starting to substantiate these out, some seemingly outrageous claims. And I also have to say, for those of you who are more um, sophisticated listeners, students of both the Hinduism traditions and Buddhism, that this kind of classification of, of, of mind and reality into these three states, of course, is just the simplest of all models. In, in the esoteric Hindu traditions, they talk about a fourth state, literally um, called the fourth, i.e. Turiya, and then also a state what's called the Churyatita beyond the fourth. Um, uh, Buddhism also talks about this kind of 
classification um, in terms of the trachea. And then um, basically other wisdom traditions also show that it's not just as simple as three states, but this is the, the simplest way to explain or at least talk about this wide bandwidth of possibility that we have. And so to return to what I was just saying, it's really a, an almost outrageous claim for many of us in the West, but one that has been asserted by both Tibetan Buddhism and also the non-dual Vedantic traditions referred to as Advaita Vedanta, where they say that this kind of wake-centric model that we have, this wake-centricity, is, is, is really kind of ass-backwards, that we attribute and confer and impute upon the waking state the status that this is the only way to really look at reality. But according to these uh, traditions and others, this is actually the, the dimension of reality that is the most distant from truth, the, mo the most distant from the true nature of reality. And so this is why they assert that if we are lucid to it, we are actually more in contact with reality in the dream state and even the most in contact with reality in the deep dreamless state. And even in Western, I found a couple of really cool Western references to this. So it's not just the East, but there's an author, Lovecraft, who writes, and here's his beautiful quote, I have frequently wondered if the majority of mankind ever paused to reflect upon the occasionally titanic significance of dreams and of the obscure world to which they belong. Sometimes I believe that this less material life is our truer life, and that our vain presence on this terraqueous globe is itself the secondary or merely virtual phenomena, end quote. And this was echoed by um, Thoreau in a very brief but beautiful um, statement when he says, our truest life is when we are in dreams awake. And so the idea here, and I have to say this for the practitioners, the meditators who are listening, what this really means is that our normal waking state is the most dualistic, the most reified, the most asleep state, and therefore the one with least potential for transformation. If we're lucid to it, these subtle dimensions have more potentiality, which is precisely why, now coming from the East particularly, Ramana Maharshi, the great sage, said so beautifully and cryptically, that which does not exist in deep, dreamless sleep is not real. In the Buddhist tradition, when we're talking about this dimension, it's connected deeply to what's called Dharma Kaya, which is really body of truth. And so the more formless it becomes, which is exactly what happens when we descend into deep, dreamless, i.e. formless sleep, the more real it becomes. Um, and so, uh, uh, again, another Eastern master, and this is a quote I, I mention quite frequently, Namkai Norbo Rinpoche, um, says this about the potentialities of the dream state for facilitating spiritual development. He says this, It is easier to develop your practices in a dream than in the daytime. In the daytime, we are limited by our material body, and I would say, paren, this is me, by our wake-centric models and, and insertion. But in a dream, our function of mind and our consciousness of the senses are unhindered. We can have more clarity. There are more, thus, there are more possibilities. If a person applies a practice within a dream, the practice is up to nine times more effective than when it is applied during waking hours. That's a great quote to pause and take a drink on.
because again, these are, these numbers I believe are somewhat archetypal. Archetypal, we shouldn't take them too literally. But the idea is that if we again can attain lucidity in these more formless dimensions, do our meditations the way Milarepa and Kemperimiche alluded to in that initial statement, um, we have a higher potentiality to accelerate our psycho-spiritual development in these more subtle, defined, refined states of mind. Um, in large part because we're working with more of the tectonic plates of our experience. We're, we're, we're working with the foundations of mind itself. And so just like when you work with the roots of a tree instead of the leaves or the branches or even the trunk, what you do with the roots will affect everything that flowers above. And in exactly the same way, this is why the, the literature, and this also includes, by the way, the lucid dreaming literature, and I have reference to this peppered throughout the nightclub posts that are already there, um, according to this literature, the types of transformation that can take place literally within the context of a single lucid dream, a single night, have the potential to shapeshift your entire life. And I argue it's akin, excuse me, even though I've never had a near-death experience, I believe it's akin to that type of transformative um, power because when people have these NDEs, the, these near-death experiences, I believe they're touching potentially something so foundational to their being, so real, so unequivocally true, that it, it creates a cognitive earthquake. It, it shapeshifts their, the entire um, trajectory of their lives. And this is why so many people, like Evan Alexander, who wrote Proof of Heaven, and all these other amazing um, kind of uh, monologues, travel logs of these experiences, you do not have to have a near-death experience over and over to be changed by it forever. And in a very real way, this is the, I'm saying this because it's so important in terms of maintaining encouragement. You don't have to have what's called a hyper-lucid dream over and over to be irrevocably changed by it. You don't have to have an experience of lucid sleep every night to be changed by it. You only need one of these puppies to have it change the way you relate to everything. And because I've been doing this and many of my colleagues as well as certainly nothing special about my experience, but because I've been practicing these wholeheartedly for some 40 years, um, for me, without any question, the most powerful transformative experiences I've had in my life have in fact come from these deep meditative um, and also dream and sleep states. And so I want to back um, out just a little bit and, and come back to this idea of wake centricity and talk about... Um, some of the main reasons why we have this type of prejudice. And so I want to talk about the first one today, and then I'll come back to the next one in, in the next webinar when I talk about um, egocentricity. Um, but the one I want to talk about now is really beautifully typified in a very famous story by the Sufi jokester, Mullah Nazaruddin. Um, I love this guy. He, he's like the uh, Stephen Colbert of the Sufi tradition. Um, and so in the story, which I'm certain, sure many of you know, there's uh, uh, the character Nazruddin, again, this trickster, um, is searching from under a streetlight. We can make it contemporaneous. You know, he's outside looking under a streetlight. Um, he's searching for his, his lost key, the key to his house. And a, a neighbor comes up to him um, and, and uh, says, uh, Nazruddin, what are you doing? He goes, well, you know, I lost, I lost the key. And he goes, okay, let, let me help you. And so they keep looking, looking. And after a while, the neighbor says, hey, uh, Mullah, where exactly did you lose this key, man? I, I don't see it anywhere. And Nazradin um, says, in my house. And so the neighbor um, explains incredulously, then why in the world are we looking out here? And not missing a beat, 
fully logical and consistent, Nasruddin allegedly replies, well, because there's more light out here. In other words, they're looking where the looking is easy. And, and the idea here is that the outside world may indeed have more light, but it's not where the key was lost and, and therefore can be found. That key was lost back at home, back inside, back in the dark, um, inside, in the darkness within us, our innermost home, our truest self, um, really in the beginning of all. And as I will also unpack in future webinars, this is why I'm going to talk to you about when we explore darkness, we're exploring origins. We're, we're exploring the Genesis. I mean, literally, even in the, uh, I believe in the book of Genesis, it is said that darkness precedes light. Cosmologically, the Big Bang, you know, the big light show, allegedly came out of background radiation of utter darkness. We are conceived in darkness, germinate nine months or so in darkness, and then are born from it. Um, seeds germinate in the dark. And so when we're exploring darkness, darkness of the unconscious mind, darkness of the, of the, of the heart, of the deeper self, we are exploring origins. And so this is another thing I talk about with the nocturnal meditations, this idea of stealth help. There's more going on than meets the outbound um, distracted eye. That underneath is radar, underneath the seeming thing, oh, it's, it's lucid dreaming seems kind of cool, wild, entertaining, fun, for sure, definitely. I'm not dissing that at all. But underneath it, beneath it, below it, are these really deep, deep explorations that the other nocturnal practices unearth. And when we're exploring these things, our deepest self, not only are we exploring the genesis and the origins of who we are, we're by implication and application extending the origins of everything. And this is in fact one of the great kind of mind-shattering discoveries for me, and it's one reason I'm so passionate about this stuff and why we launched the site, because I want to share with you the insights I've discovered personally um, and also with my colleagues and the wisdom traditions have been asserting for, for really hundreds and hundreds of years that when you explore this stuff, it's much more than mere um, video game. It's much more than just entertainment. You're starting to talk about the matrix of, of reality altogether. And I think you'll see this as we start to go along further. But the idea here is we tend to look where the looking is easy. Um, but basically, we're, we're uh, as Nasruddin's story says, we're looking in the wrong place. If we're looking outside, um, we're looking, you could say we're looking for love, we're looking for reality in all the wrong um, places. And so I came across this beautiful quote by Einstein where, where he says, this is really quite lovely, he says, I have little patience with scientists who take a board of wood, look for its thinnest part, and drill a great number of holes where the drilling is easy. I, I think that's just terrific. So as spelunkers of the mind, as drillers of the mind heart, we may not be looking and drilling um, where the wood is the thinnest, where it's the easiest. It's so much easier to look outside. But we dig and we drill where the wood is the thickest. And in and, and so doing, we get to, I believe, more fruitful dimensions of, of discovery. And this particular tenet, by the way, is of such importance in the Buddhist tradition that even, even the etymology, even the words of Buddhist and Tibetan connect to it. In other words, the word uh, Buddhist in the Tibetan language is uh, chipa, which means nangpa. I'm sorry, the word for Buddhist in uh, Tibetan is nangpa, which means insider, one who understands that fundamentally happiness is an inside job, so to speak. 
Those who look outside, so-called non-Buddhists, are called um, outsiders, chita. And so even this, this, this notion of turning the lens of the mind in, looking within, is inherent in the very fabric of, of this tradition, the, the Buddhist tradition, from the Tibetan perspective. And so what I want to start to close out with so we can open this up for discussion is, and again, empower the night. Because by challenging wake centricity, what we're simultaneously doing by implication is we're actually empowering the nocturnal mind. Um, and that, again, is exactly the chart of what I'm trying to do here. And so I want to close with a few statements around this. Um, and perhaps to me, it was somewhat kind of a poetic rendering of it. And that is that when the natural curfew of the night descends um, and it starts to get dark, we, if you have kids, we do things like, oh, you know, time to come in, you know, time to kind of round up, time to um, shut down the shop, time to close the store, time to come inside. Um, and so the, the night invites this type of um, introspection with this natural curfew, which is a curfew that restricts our weight-centric and outward-bound awareness. Um, and as we will also see again in future webinars when I talk about sight-centricity and light-centricity, um, we now in this modern age, we break this curfew consistently with artificial light. Um, and so I'm going to talk about how that, you know, really painful irony of how it is that artificial light actually is a main signature of the dark age. Um, so again, I'm planting seeds for, for future ones. And so when it gets dark, this natural curfew invites a type of retreat retreat away from the light. So we come inside, we retreat indoors. And then of course, when we lie down to sleep, we retreat even further. We, we shut down even further. We close down into ourselves um, as we um, fall asleep. And this is precisely where the nocturnal meditations come in because we may be turning off the lights outside, so to speak, but these nocturnal practices allow us to turn on this night light, this inner light and allow us to see things we have never seen before. And again, parenthetically, this natural curfew of the night is reiterated, and I would say strictly enforced, not just at the end of the day, but at the end of life, when we're forced into a really an uncompromising type of retreat, literally called the dream at the end of time, which of course is death. Um, and so this is where bardo yoga comes in. So lucid dreaming, dream yoga, sleep yoga, help us turn in um, during the context of our lives. Bardo yoga helps us turn in at the end of life and can turn not just the darkness of the night into um, opportunities for awakening, but actually the darkness of death altogether. Um, and I love to bring in this kind of juxtaposition of quotations from the East and West, um, because from the West, this kind of, um, wake-centric model that we have is reiterated to me poetically very beautifully um, by Dylan Thomas, where he exhorts us in a typical Western fashion in a very famous poem, you know, where he says at the end of that, uh, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. He's talking about death, but it applies to any of these iterations of darkness. Do not go gentle into the night. Keep the light on. Uh, bring in the artificial light, do whatever we can do to stay distracted, to stay pulled away from ourselves. Um, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Well, um, 
you know, Rabindranath Tagore, the great Bengali poet, I believe has a beautiful kind of Eastern counter to this, where he says, death is not extinguishing the light. It's just merely putting out the lamp because dawn has come. And so this, of course, is precisely what bardo yoga does, the highest of the nocturnal practices. Um, and it can help us remove all fear of death because mostly um, when we die, we are afraid of the darkness of death in large part because at this level, unlike when we fall asleep, we can't bring any artificial light with us in, into this darkness. The natural curfew is strictly enforced when we die. But if we can turn on that internal nightlight, the internal light light that's illuminated provisionally in lucid dreaming, more radiantly with lucid sleeping, and then very specifically with what's called lucid dying or the discovery of the clear light mind, that's a game changer. Um, and that's exactly where these nocturnal practices can go you. And so darkness, therefore, to summarize, darkness curtails wake centricity. And it does seem to limit us because we have this addiction towards light and even shut us down. But if we relate to it properly, it invites a deeper exploration of more subtle dimensions of mind and reality. Um, darkness, therefore, invites us to wake up to truer dimensions. And in today's um, it, it part of nightclub, we put out, it's one of the benefits I didn't mention, we put out what's called the Daily Whisper of Wisdom, which is where I collect quotes from all over the place and just ping them into your um, box every day. And this one came in serendipitously. I did not plan for this one to pop up today, but I found it somewhat fortuitous and auspicious in terms of our conversation. Um, and this one comes from a really fantastic book called Walk, a Learning, I think it's called Learning to Walk in the Dark by a Christian theologian, Barbara Brown Taylor. It's a really beautiful book that honors darkness in a, in a wonderful way. And she says this, it's really beautiful. She says, when the sun goes down, it's time for another natural thing to happen. As the slower, quieter, and more tactile rhythms of nighttime open, rhythms of nighttime open doors that remain shut during the day. No doubt there are frightening things behind some of those doors, but there are also stunning things. Eventually, with some practice, one learns that all these doors open onto the same room. Darkness is not dark to God. The night is as bright as the day. Um, and this becomes really interesting to me when I look at the work of the great paleontologist and philosopher um, Thierry de Chardin, where many of you know his work, where he argued very beautifully that evolution hasn't stopped, it's only moved indoors. Evolution has uh, moved indoors to the level of consciousness, to the level of mind. And this is, in fact, what these um, nocturnal practices invite us and allow us to do, to, to turn within, to see how it is that we have this extraordinary opportunity and capacity within us, and to realize that we are actually leading in many ways um, and I'll argue this at the very beginning of the next webinar because I want to pause and, and start to take some questions. I will start the very next webinar with exactly this um, launching pad, how it is that what Chardin talked about is the evolutionary trajectory now being one of internal, the evolution of mind and consciousness itself, an evolution that could in fact be invited by the natural curfew of the night that these nocturnal practices then um, further invite. I want to start the next webinar 
um, with when I'm talking about this one, I'm talking about our next public webinar in uh, in a couple months with about how it is using some very compelling um, references from neuroscientists and current writers that quite literally these uh, nocturnal adventurers, lucid dreamers and the like, could quite literally be leading the forefront of evolution. Um, and so I leave you with that little bit of a of a preview of coming attractions. And I've talked a lot longer than I normally do um, for this webinar because again, this is a different webinar, it's a bit more open. It's a, a larger kind of presentational um, event. Um, the ones that we do on the site, I usually talk about half an hour max, and then we have more frequent um, uh, opportunities for discussion and the like. But I wanted to give you a sense of how much is available um, in the darkness of the night that you may not have been aware of. We're just barely scratching the surface here. And when we return, I want to um, re-enter this, talk about this evolutionary um, opportunity that we have every single night when we sleep and dream, and then also expand this further by talking how it is that wake-centricity is in the service of egocentricity. And again, to continue to expand these kind of closures that we are unwittingly um, restricted by, so that in fact we can turn those closures into opportunities for opening. And so, um, again, I usually don't talk this much, but um, I did today because I wanted to give you a deeper dive into the potentialities of what we're doing. And at this point, if you have questions, Andy will mediate some of those. I hope you've entered them in the, in the um, panel on the right, and let's start talking about this a little bit. Great. Thanks, Andrew. So I have uh, the first question that came in. It's from Courtney. Uh, it's a little bit longer, but I'll read through it, okay? Sure. The pinpoint light of having hundreds of galaxies infers it actually goes infinitely bigger and infinitely smaller. I purchased a program from Ken Wilber. Integration had a massive map linking the quantum sciences and various psychology to explain reality. This is great, yet highly conceptual. Is mm -hmm. this how Dharma is taking root in the West? Evidence-based, quote, evidence-based concepts and solid, super subtle preferences and solid beliefs of this existing model seems to be both informative and, and, and an enormous obstacle for the real practice. Beautiful. The, the experiential experience and the need for a teacher, I sense this might set wisdom traditions up to fail in the West. You have a lot of experience before, quote, geeking out, parentheses, love it, exclamation point in the science. The entry point of this collaboration would seem to be a conceptual entry, thus set up for failure from the get-go. Thoughts? Yeah. Awesome. Courtney, thank you. Awesome. I could not agree more with you, my dear. And here's here's the deal. Um, and and you, as you know, I'm a huge fan of integral theory. I, I interviewed Ken for three hours to start. He was our first guest. Um, I'm a nerd. I'm a geek. I, I spend too much time up here. I love these complexities. Um, and hopefully what I presented today wasn't too much of that. But here's what I want to say to your really great point. Um, and I didn't say this just because there's only so much I can cover in one in one um, webinar, but the trajectory that I have taken in my entire life that I write about and every time I give a seminar, this is the, this is the foundation kind of um, pedagogical template that I use is something that is incredibly important that you bring to the fore. And that is that, yes, indeed, if, if you simply stay stuck at the level of the map, um, it's not going to change you. It is, as titillating, exciting, and provocative and compelling as it can be, you can really get kind of lost in, in cognitive space. And it's not really fundamentally going to change you. And so 
the approach I have taken, and is what we is what we take in, in nightclub, and I just simply didn't talk about it, is this kind of what I talk about as Gnostic pedagogy. And by that, what is meant is sometimes called the three wisdom tools or the three prajnas, which is that of hearing, contemplating, and meditating. And this is really important. This is what separates what I'm doing, what I've spent my life doing, um, from university courses, from traditional kind of academic things. And I'm, again, I'm not dissing that in any way. I'm just trying to point out, somewhat akin to the centricity of the waking state, how cognitive centricity in itself is also limiting. So that's another one of these puppies. And so the way this tripartite model um, of, of uh, you know, deep education, as I've come to really experience it, is we start with hearing. We just start where we are because we're, we're complex people in a complex world with complex minds. And so we start with, you know, complex ideas. And that's the level of hearing where we, we get the data, we, we start to ingest um, information. And we're living in an information age, and there's so much to say about that because very often, exactly like you said, we confuse information for experience. We eat the menu instead of the meal. And therefore, instead of getting full, we just get fat. And so I would argue, again, and so much to say here, that a large, so much of our um, obesity epidemics is we are, we, are, we are obese in so many different ways. And one of them is just raw information. Like, in a certain sense, <laughs> this webinar was pretty fat. I mean, there's just a lot of weight here, right? So that's just the first phase. So we start with hearing. Next thing is perhaps we start to contemplate. That's why I gave you that beautiful um, quotation from the Dzogchen tradition, which, by the way, I'll post on the site that you, you can write down and study. And we're going to come back to this puppy because this will then launch us into the third phase. So second phase is contemplation. You, di you, you uh, digest, you think about it, you reflect upon it, you start to get it into your system. You're testing it against um, previous uh, belief systems. You're testing it against the fabric of your experience and your history. And you're seeing if you can really take it down all the way. The final step, and exactly what you said, um, is um, meditation. This is when the, you take this data, it's ingest, digest, metabolize. And so with meditation, you leave all the stuff behind. Um, you don't meditate with your head, you meditate with your body and your heart. It's just this kind of trajectory of waking down into the wisdom of your body, which parenthetically, this is exactly where we go in deep dreamless sleep from waking consciousness. We go from here, the head chakra during the waking state, throat chakra during the dream state, heart chakra in the center of our body in deep dreamless state. So even the descent into sleep from an Eastern subtle body perspective reiterates this kind of journey. But what you say cannot be overstated. It's so important that fundamentally you leave all this stuff behind. It's a very elegant map, but you've got to self-liberate the antidote. You have to let the map go. Otherwise, you're just going to get intellectually fat. And, and you digest, you metabolize, you bring it into your being. That's when you feel it. That's when it changes you. That's when the teachings literally become you. And you can feel it when you're around meditation masters like this holiness the dalai lama if you've ever or any that doesn't matter his tibetan name literally kundan means presence these people have such embodied wisdom that's the difference between wisdom and knowledge they don't even have to open their mouths to change others they change them by the very the radiance of their very being 
And so, um, so much to say here, but exactly right. Ingest, digest, metabolize, hearing, contemplating, meditating. Eventually, you drop all this blah, 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 which is exactly what happens when you go to sleep. Again, that trajectory invites this. You got to shut up, otherwise, you're never going to fall asleep. That's where wisdom lies in the silence of the night, in the darkness of the night. That's where wisdom really lies. So, we start here. And we turn the dial down, we, we shut up, and eventually we wake down. Um, and that's where we find this rhetoric becomes reality. That's when we experience what this stuff um, has to share. But then, you know, I, 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 I put this forth as a slight counter. Well, well, then what do you do with that? Well, do you just stay down there, bathed in this bliss, and, and just enjoy your own individual liberation? Well, not really. If you do, that's not complete. That's not complete wisdom because... When wisdom is fully actualized, its spontaneous expression is compassion. And so that compassion, when you then come up from that, how are you going to share that insight? Well, you could dance it, you could write it, you could sing it. I'm a musician. Sometimes I play it on the piano. But if you want to communicate with other people, you've got to kind of come back up. You, then you have to enter the domain of, of um, hearing yet again. And so... You know, hearing has its place, but in the spirit of integral theory, it's not the only place. Contemplation has its place. Meditation has its place. And for me, it's it's identifying the respective places, honoring and incorporating and using them all. So what a beautiful um, challenge and question. And I could not agree more with you. So thank you so much for that. You still there, Andy? Of course, yeah. Sorry. I have no new questions at the moment. I freaked out because of all the silence. <laughs> <laughs> so does anybody else have another question or comment or shouldn't be afraid of silence. Or if there's a follow up to to what I just said about the first one. I find it, while people are thinking, I find it very um, interesting how um, uneasy, uh, me included, um, people sometimes get around silence. Um, it's it's uh, a little bit threatening to the ongoing kind of narrative of the uh, ego, because ego is um, really, when you take a good look at it, and this is what um, exploring things like the default mode network show, um, ego in itself is fundamentally just a narrative. It's just a story. And part of the success story of ego is is actually keeping the storyline going, keeping it going. And so um, I find it quite interesting that when there are big gaps, when there are bardos, when there are spaces, how sometimes the egoic mind gets a little bit unsettled. And I, I've always had this kind of playful image of, of a talk show host, you know, like a Buddhist um, Stephen Colbert, Buddhist version, where the a guest comes on and there's just all these, these big, um, uh, you know, uncomfortable gaps and uh, moments of silence <laughs> between the conversation and how uneasy that makes people feel. And so in, a, in an ironical way to stuff that hole, um, of course, what am I doing? I'm filling it. Um, and so... If nobody I'm else here to rescue you. <laughs> oh, no, rescue you. Thank God. I, I, I get terrified with all the silence. <laughs> um, 
Sandhya wrote in and asked, would you say more about near-death experiences? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I've never had one physically. Um, I've had what I guess I would say would be near-death spiritual experiences, which is on, on a real level one of the things that we're aspiring towards undoing. In other words, dying to this false sense of identity. But to be a little bit more specific, you know, again, this is a really large topic. Um, it, it's received a tremendous amount of press over the years. Um, one of the most famous ones that I alluded to during the webinar is this rendering by the neurosurgeon Evan Alexander, where he talks about a, quite a powerful near-death experience he had where he flatlined. Um, and so, again, there's a great deal to say here, but the one thing that I think is most applicable for us is that um, these near-death experiences can point out um, very powerfully, very irrevocably, um, subtle states of mind that, again, always lie within us. They're, they're always there, but they're drowned out by these forms of centricities, these, these volume levels. So, you know, external waking consciousness, you could say is very loud consciousness. Um, sleeping uh, mind is a more silent kind of whispering level. And then deep, dreamless, formless sleep or death is utter silence. And so um, using that kind of imagery, when people have these completely, absolutely ecstatic moments of utter silence, where the narrative, the egoic narrative is shut down, um, the volume is turned all the way down. And it, you know, I guess I suppose one of the most powerful, I wouldn't say powerful, but most uh, immediate analogies might be if you're in a, a large amphitheater room or whatever, and there's been this huge air conditioning system on for hours, and then all of a sudden it's just turned off. You didn't even know it was on. And all of a sudden there's this almost like disturbing, you know, they sometimes call it the thunder of silence. Um, and so, again, so much to say around near-death experiences, but what I conjecture is that people drop into this level of utter profundity, utter silence, utter cessation of the conceptual mind of the egoic structure that is so radically revelatory um, that, again, it can change everything. It can be a complete, utter game-changer. And then they come up um, from this experience, and because it's so foundational and so shattering, you don't have to have these puppies all the time. They're so true and so real, they can change the entire course of your life with just one um, experience like that. And so what, what we can do with these nocturnal practices, what we can do with the meditative path altogether, is we in fact can descend into these exactly analogous states. And, and of course, according to both Bardo Yoga and sleep yoga, which is like a segue into part of yoga, um, we can, you can, as they say, we can die before we die. We can have um, not physical states that are utterly um, synonymous with physical death, because of course that would then be physical death, but consciousness, the outward bound consciousness can in fact completely die. And then that allows this utter rebirth or awakening to these extremely subtle states that these practices invite. And then from there, those are experiences that I have had, and they're not, they're not difficult to access. In fact, they're quite available to us. It's just recognizing them that is the trick. Um, and so that I can speak with some experience on. You, know, you, you come up, so to speak, from those 
states of meditative absorption, or you come up from those states of, of deep, dreamless sleep, lucidity. And I would suspect that it's somewhat akin to a near-death experience where you know you, you, you never quite see the world the same way again. And there are some um, intimations that, or hints that psychedelic agents can glimpse these. I talked a little bit about this with James Kingsland um, just yesterday. In fact, it's one reason some of you may know that um, starting with the work of Stan Groff, now other researchers now starting to do it, um, LSD and psilocybin and other agents like that are actually being used to help people prepare for death because they can introduce, they can break the egoic structure, they can kind of challenge the dominance of eccentricities pharmacologically. And many people um, very powerfully come back from these controlled um, hallucinogenic experiences previously completely terrified of death they come out of one of these ex experiences and their their fear is gone um, because they've glimpsed something that is is really i think quite concordant or quite um similar to what can happen in, in an actual near-death experience so i'm not quite sure where else to take that it's a, it's a massive topic there's so much to say about near-death experiences how it, what's actually phenomenologically taking place um, the teachings on barter yoga, that's the sixth track in our night school, so to speak. That's what this puppy is all about. Um, that's what my second big book on preparing to die is all about. Um, understanding this, um, bringing about so-called voluntary death, uh, death and transcendence, dying to false levels of identity, opening up the truer dimensions of being. So maybe I'll leave it at that because um, I'm not quite sure where this question really wanted to go, but that's what comes to mind. More silence to be afraid of. Well, Jeff, Jeff chimed in and he said Trungpa was very good with silence. Yeah, wasn't he? And he also said, thanks, Jeff. He also said, you may see his picture back there, by the way. He also said that uh, silence is the Buddhist version of God. And uh, again, he was the master of the one minor. Um, and we're afraid of that God, aren't we? We're afraid of, of, um, silence and stillness and darkness I and mean, they're all in that same family that with a speedy windy overly activated overly outbound mind it's threatened by that level of you could say even simplicity um so yeah thanks for that interjection he was not afraid of it and, and neither should we be so with that said I'll, I'll try to sit here in silence and see if there are any more questions without freaking out thanks for sharing that Jeff. And if there isn't, cool. One just popped in. Uh, this is from Joseph. Do you have any thoughts on exploring liminal experiences in a meditation? Surfing, if you will, hypnagogia or hypnopompia? Read, read the last part again. I'm sorry. I, I just I simply lost what you said, Andy. I'm sorry. You said it again. Oh, sure. Um, do you have any thoughts on exploring liminal experiences in a meditation, surfing, if you will, hypnagogia or hypnopompia? Yeah, surf, uh, that, that's the word I missed, surfing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, 
a provocative question for sure. So hypnagogia, hypnosis is the god of sleep, or literally sleep. Um, gogia means leaning towards. Um, pomp, pompa, uh, pompic means leading away. So it's a wonderful kind of etymology of leading towards, heading towards the god of sleep or heading away from the god of sleep. And, and, and what this refers to is that kind of um, gap-like or bardo-like state between waking consciousness and dreaming consciousness on either end, you know, just before, pre, and post. And for sure, what we do with what's called lucid sleep onset um, is explore the stages. In particular, most people find it uh, most interesting to work with the hypnagogic state coming into sleep. And, and there, there's so much to say here. There are four classic um, stages of this descent. Um, you know, we usually fall asleep. There's images of nature scenes and faces, some flashes of light, and what are referred to as uh, thought image amalgamations. This is where it gets really interesting, where you, as you're falling asleep, you may not have seen this before, but um, unfolding this map may help you explore it and, and uh, play with it. And by the way, as you said, surfing these states is a completely viable form of nocturnal practice, a completely viable form of watching how it is that the mind transitions from the waking state into the dream or even dreamless state. And so to me, the most interesting are the third and fourth, fourth stages of hypnagogic descent, which the third one being thought image amalgamation, where you're thinking um, that's still mostly uh, waking consciousness. And then the, the thinking becomes a little bit less conscious and it transforms into images. And so you have this kind of thought image fusion thing and then eventually the thought image, eventually the image takes over. Then that inflates, quote unquote, into a, a, a very brief dreamlet. Um, and that is extraordinarily interesting process. I, I work with this literally every single night on both ends, pre and post, where I will watch a thought morph into an image, inflate into a, a little micro lucid dreamlet. These dreamlets usually last for me one, two, three, four, five seconds. They don't last very long. Not enough time for me to do, actually do anything with them. But that doesn't make them any less viable as a, a lucid dream. And in fact, it belongs to a family of what's called wake-initiated lucid dreams, where you're, you're bringing lucidity from the waking state into the dream state. Um, it's, about, it's one of the two principal ways to bring about lucidity. You can, you can either become lucid within the dream, you're dreaming, Something clues you into the fact, a dream sign. That's called a dream-initiated lucid dream. You're dreaming, something clicks you in, and you go, oh, my gosh, I must be dreaming lucid dream. That's one way. The other way is wake-initiated lucid dream. You actually bring a, a kind of a scent of lucidity or, or wakefulness with you as you drop into the dream state. And so I find this really fruitful to do, and certainly you can do it in meditation in addition to when you're falling asleep, especially when you're dozing off on a long formal meditation retreat instead of wrestling with it and torturing yourself, now you have a new skill set where you can transition from perhaps your normal sitting shamatha meditation technique or whatever. You can transition to a, a lucid sleep onset technique where you basically sit back in what's called a witnessing stance. <clears throat> and the dreams, therefore, that arise are literally called witnessing lucid dreams. In other words, you're actually not participating in them. You're just watching them. But that doesn't make them any less viable. Ken Wilber talks about this as pellucidity. Um, it's the same thing. And so, yes, for sure. That's the other thing that's just, again, another kind of stealth health uh, collateral benefit. 
um, you can work with this every single night when you go to sleep. If that process of working with it actually greases the skids towards the city. You can do it as you're waking up in the morning. You can see that same process. You're coming out from the dream state um, into the waking state. You can work with that same type of Bardo experience there as well. And I do it both um, uh, in bed, and I also do it on the meditation cushion, as I mentioned. I'll sit there. My mind gets drowsy. Instead of fighting it, I go, okay, well, let's just watch. Let's watch how thought transforms into image transforms into dream. Um, and uh, I mean, there's a wonderful statement by Stephen LaBerge, you know, the father, you could say, of, of lucid dreaming in the West. It also supplements this where he says, you know, um, what does he say? Waking consciousness is dreaming consciousness with sensory constraints. Dreaming consciousness is waking consciousness without sensory constraints. And so you can see that when the constraints are taken off, when the shackles are taken off, how it is that, you know, um, thoughts are to waking reality as dreams are to dreaming reality. And so you can start to, to see in this kind of um, uh, investigation of the descent into the hypnagogic space, you can watch this really fascinating transformation of consciousness as it goes from the waking state to the dream state. Um, so, yeah, something like that. I do it regularly. A lot of my lucid dream colleagues, they actually tell me that this is one of the principal ways they engage with lucid dreaming every single night. So um, absolutely spot on. You can totally do it both on the cushion and in your bed. So good one. Okay. Maybe one more. Another. Sure. Well, this next question uh, might um, dovetail from the last question or answer you just gave, but uh, this is from Julia. Can you please talk about lucid dreaming induction techniques? Oh my goodness. Well, small topic. <clears throat> Thanks, Julia. I will say just a little bit about it because it's it's, it's such a monumental topic. Um, um, so much to say. Well, let me just say this. What One of the principal things I'm doing now in uh, the previous webinars, I've been setting it up, and also in the, in the nightclub track for lucid dreaming, I get into this in tremendous detail. So there's already a lot of references on that on the site itself. But briefly... Again, there, there's a host of, bad, uh, of techniques, a battery of techniques, um, both within the family of wake-initiated lucidity and also dream-initiated lucidity. And so the induction methods are many. Let me just tell you briefly what the major techniques are. And this I have definitely talked about in previous webinars, so you can look those up, and there's a lot of traffic on this, where what I call the foundational techniques or the super techniques for lucidity, these, these are the infrastructure induction methods that um, I believe are critically important. They create this kind of field of, of lucidity, this field of dreams, where then the specific induction methods can be planted. And so the first one is really a, a, a power, a really strong sense of intentionality. And this may seem almost patronizing to say, but in the world of lucid dreaming, intentionality is everything. Um, the word literally means to stretch towards. So what you're doing is stretching the conscious mind towards previously unconscious domain. And so what you do here is throughout the course of the day um, with real heartfelt intentionality, not just flapping your lips. You say to yourself, tonight I'm going to have many dreams. Tonight I'm going to remember my dreams. Tonight I'm going to have lucid dreams. And you really mean it. Um, I have been to dream yoga seminars with dream yoga masters where the only induction technique they give, period, is this uh, intention. Um, so it's a biggie, and that's why I start with it. You wrap it up when you're going to sleep. You're lying down in bed. Um, you know, you can say, you know, tonight, yeah, tonight, 
tonight. I'm going to have a lucid dream. I'm going to have a lucid dream. Helps to say it out loud. Believe it or not, it actually helps to write it out. Um, so that's a huge one. Second one, just briefly, because again, there's so much to say here. Um, entire books have been written on this topic. Second one is uh, belief, the power of belief. Um, if you believe in your dreams, you will start to have them. One of the reasons we dismiss lucidity and lucid dreams, again, it's it's a kind of a sidebar to wake centricity. The wake centric model dominates all the other states. And so because of that, we dismiss dreams as being less real. On one level, provisionally, yes, they are. They're non-lucid. If you become lucid to them, they are as real as this. And so you work with belief. Um, we know how the beliefs, um, power of belief works in things like um, hypnosis and placebo effect. Placebo effect is basic. Placebo effect is basically mind effect, which is basically a belief effect. So in the world of lucid dreaming, it's, you know, I'll see it when I believe it. So read books about this stuff, take courses, um, just soak in it, believe it, believe it, believe it. And if we step out of this, and I'll talk about this later, this kind of monophasic culture, which is what we are. Wake centricity is part of a monophasic culture where the wake centric state dominates. If we step out of that into what's called a polyphasic approach, which actually constitutes, believe it or not, 90% of the world's indigenous traditions, cultures are, are um, polyphasic cultures. They honor dreams, and so they have more lucid dreams. Um, so the power of belief is enormous. Third foundational super technique, of course, is meditation. Um, countless studies have shown meditators have more lucid dreams. For a meditation master, all their dreams are lucid. And it's because when you engage in the practice of meditation, it's really, paren, the practice of lucidity. Um, the reason we're non-lucid to the contents of our mind as they're released at night is because we're re uh, non-lucid to the contents of the mind as it's expressed during the day. And so as we become more and more lucid, more aware, more mindful of our mind in meditation, we will absolutely positively start to have more lucid dreams. Um, and so when, when that is established, and this is probably where I'll leave it for now, then you have all the specific induction techniques. You have um, the wild methods, you have the counting down methods, you have the wake and back to bed method, um, you have supplements like galantamine. I mean, there are quite literally, no exaggeration, dozens and dozens of induction methods that you can then plant on this kind of fertile field. But if you do nothing else, if you just do those three, intentionality, belief, and meditation, you're going to start having lucid dreams. You supplement that with all these other really skillful Western things, the dream goggles, the supplements, the specific induction techniques, there's no way non-lucidity just doesn't have a chance. You will absolutely positively start to have these dreams. So literally the question is one that could see, I'm not kidding, an entire book. Um, I have quite a bit of data on that already on Nightclub, um, and so there's a ton there. Um, so maybe I'll leave it there just because, again, it's just such a voluminous topic. So, But those are the three infrastructure ones, intention, belief, meditation. Daily practices that absolutely positively grease the skins for lucidity and night. Totally works. So do you want one more question, Andrew? There's one more yeah. in the queue. Yeah, if it's there, then we can then we can close it down. That'd be perfect. Sure. Thank you. Uh, this is from Jordy. It says, if you had to give a single piece of advice to accompany someone who is sick and who does not have much time left to live, bearing in mind that he is not in the Buddhist tradition, what would it be? Relax, 
I mean, really, just uh, it may sound patronizing, but just um, open and relax. It's it's really akin to the narrative of this of this um, webinar is that if you simply open to this experience, it becomes utterly non-problematic. Um, it, it may seem somewhat glib to say this, but it's utterly, completely true that in, in many ways, you know, irrespective of any tradition, it doesn't matter. Um, death is the simplest thing to do. You, you just have to get out of the way and, and let nature do its thing. Um, that's what creates a so-called graceful exit. Um, Ungraceful exits are those who close down, who, again, in centricity, um, they contract around the past. They contract around what could have been. They contract around what should be. And they don't allow themselves to accept. Acceptance is the application of openness. And so there's all this traffic these days, and I think rightly so. With Minja Rinpoche, just wrote an incredibly beautiful book, In Love with the World, that just came out, where he talks about the power of acceptance and how that's where he went when he almost died on the streets of India. He had this incredibly beautiful, powerful near-death experience and came back to share with us what that was like. Um, Tara Brock and others talk about radical acceptance. And I am a massive fan of, of these types of teachings because if we simply can open to them, um, say yes to experiences as untoward, as unwanted um, as death, then everything becomes completely non-problematic. So um, I just wanted to substantiate that very simple instruction, um, which is just uh, encourage your friend that this is a completely natural process that you know hundreds of thousands of people die every single day. Um, that it's a completely natural kind of journey. You can't have birth without death. That 108 billion people have died before this individual has. And that if we simply just relax and surrender, as difficult as it is, and it's, it's usually because we don't realize we have something to look forward to, if we simply accept, say yes, open to what's happening, um, death becomes quite a beautiful experience. It just happens on its own. The, the problems happen is when we close, contract, become centric. So it's a beautiful way, I think, to close this webinar um, on uh, the narrative of opening and just to show you how far this, you could say, even meta-narrative goes. It, it allows one to open to so-called altered states of consciousness, these subtle domains that we experience in sleep and dream. It allows us to open to our deepest self. It allows us to open to others and eventually allows us to open and even uh, accept, embrace even things as um, challenging as, as uh, the process of death. So yeah, something like that. So thank you so much for joining me. This is this is the first of our open webinars. Um, much heavier kind of download of information than normal, as I alluded to earlier. Um, as we when we come back in a couple months and, and reinstate this particular track. I will, I'm going to keep going with all these other centricities and hopefully continue to show you all these closures, these blind spots that we don't even know we're afflicted by, that limit us, that constrict us, and those limitations then naturally reveal themselves in the non-lucidity of our dreams. And so 
Um, we may not think that we're talking about lucid dreams here, but we most absolutely certainly are. Because if you start to open in these deep systemic ways, then you will open your mind and heart to the nocturnal mind. And lucid dreams are a natural consequence of this opening. And so it, it was a wide, somewhat theoretical introduction that has immediate applicability to the lucidity um, project. And as we'll see in future webinars, I will then be giving you more and more very specific practices of, of opening, um, opening our heart, opening our mind, so that we can accommodate our devices. But until then, for those of you who may be new to our little nightclub venture, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Um, we've got a lot of really cool stuff on deck, and I really appreciate your attention. So perhaps we'll see you at the club. Take care now. Thank you.